in Jesus. Amen. Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. I want to tell you about a couple of guys. Um, the first guy is named Sam. And Sam goes to church every Sunday, pretty much. He takes his Bible with him. He sits out in the chair like, like some of you are doing. And he sometimes during the song service, he just kind of mumbles through the songs. Just kind of mumbles along to some of them. During the prayers, he closes his eyes and bows his head, but usually he kind of drifts off in the prayers, thinking about what he's going to do later that day. Um, he's, when it's time to give an offering, he'll reach in his pocket and see what he's got, and he'll throw that in the offering box. Um, and he'll listen to the sermon, but, you know, from time to time throughout the sermon, he'll, his mind will wander, it'll drift off into different things, different thoughts. Um, and then at the end of the service, Sam gets up, he shakes a few hands, smiles at a few people, and he's gone. And deep down, this young man, Sam, who goes to church week after week after week, knows there's something missing in his life. And he has this emptiness, this empty feeling. And he's, he, under, he, he doesn't quite understand it, but he knows something's missing. And though this young man goes to church, goes through the motions of singing and giving and listening, um, his desires have never been changed. His heart has never been changed. He does not have a relationship with God through Christ uh, to this point in his life. He believes, though, that his religious activity is kind of good enough to kind of get the job done, to get his, have his sin forgiven and to, and to give him eternal life. Think about another guy. His name is Steve. Steve wakes up, like many of you, excited to go to church every Sunday. I mean, the alarm goes off, he jumps up ready, we're going to have to work on this mic, turn down 13 people, regardless of what happens in church service. Thank you, Peter, a little bit, just a little bit. Um, Steve wakes up excited to go to church, just like all of y'all, or did y'all hit snooze this morning? Y'all hit snooze? No, good. We don't hit snooze at our house. Somebody turn that thing off. One time, Andrew's alarm was going off in his bedroom, and I was annoyed by it, and so I called him, <laughs> and it stopped his alarm. It, instead of going in there, I was like, I can call him, stop it, you know, parent hack. Steve wakes up excited to go to church every Sunday. He grabs his Bible, takes it with him. When he walks in the front door, he's like a light. He's talking to people, shaking hands, hugging necks. When the songs come on, he's singing loud. Sometimes Steve sings too loud. People are like, we need to, you know, bring it down a notch. Um... During the prayers, he's like, mm, that's, that's a good prayer. And he's shaking his head. He's listening. During the sermons, he's taking notes. He's paying attention. He's very engaged. He, he's already planned his offerings out, so he gives his offering in, in the offering box. And he's just an excited guy. Steve is different than Sam. Sam had religious activity. Steve has religious enthusiasm. But at the end of the day, when Steve leaves the church and is at home throughout the week, he feels this emptiness, too. And the point is, Steve also does not have a relationship with God through Christ. He just has some religious, as I said, energy or enthusiasm. And the point for both of these guys is this. Religious activity 
and religious enthusiasm are both not enough, first of all, to make us Christians, of course. That only happens through faith in Christ. But secondly, those things on their own are not enough to make us good Christians once we have come to Christ. God has not called us simply to religious activity and enthusiasm, but I believe many people kind of cling to those things. And I think here's why people do that. Religious activity is easy. It's pretty easy to get, and even to some degree, for some people, religious enthusiasm is easy. Those things are easier than sincere Christian love and faithful obedience. But at the heart of our Christian life, God has called us to love and to obey. To love and to obey. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I think I mentioned it to our Wednesday night crowd. We have, as a culture, we have lowered the bar or the expectation for what a Christian is, I believe. And I said this, that if we, if we lived in the first century um, with our type of religion we have today, the Christians then would probably even doubt if we were even Christians. Because they were so, as I read it in the Bible, so serious about their faith. And I, I wonder sometimes if we're serious enough about ours. I wonder if we're more serious about everything else and that our faith gets the back burner. And so I, I want this message, I hope, to be an encouragement to you and, in, and to challenge you to consider um, your faith and to consider your, your love for God and for people and to consider your obedience. And I think you'll see this clearly in these verses um, how, how Paul here challenges us. So if you found Romans 13, verse 8, it's a word. It says this, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, Thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust. Thereof. In this text, I'm going to give us this morning two calls for the Christian, two commands or calls for us as believers. Um, coming off that interesting sermon last week about respecting authority, uh, we, we dive now into verses 8 through 14. The first one is to love one another, to love people. And you see that in verse 8, it says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. The first phrase here I think is interesting. Some people have taken this phrase to, to mean that Christians should never be in debt. Have you ever heard that before? 
many people take this phrase, and we know that the Bible speaks about being wise in borrowing and lending. Um, but as I read the scripture, even some of the words of Jesus, I think there's an expectation at times that Christians may need to borrow. Uh, but the, the point of this is not that we will never be in debt, although we pray that we're not. But the point of this is that as Christians, we will repay our debt. Look, look at verse 7 there. You have it there if you have your Bible open. Look at verse 7. We saw this last week. Render therefore to all their due. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The point of verse 8 goes back to verse 7 to say, if we owe someone something as Christians, we should be doing our diligence to repay what we owe. And that's the kind of the point of what he's saying there. And so then he says this, owe no one anything, but here's something you do owe. Here's a debt that you owe as believers, and that owe is the act of loving one another. It's, an, it's, a, it's a something that, it's a debt that we owe to one another that we can never fully repay. Have any of you ever thought, you know what, I've loved enough, I'll just quit loving people. Or I've loved God enough, I'll just quit loving God. Isn't that silly? That's silly, right? As a Christian, that's unheard of. None of us have ran out of our, run out of love. We should, and we feel like we have sometimes, but we should still be able to love others. Look at this quote I found from Origen. Origen was a early church father back in like the 200s. Many people said he was like a genius. He said, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to pay in full, but will never succeed in paying. Romans 13 tells us very plainly, love one another. And as I read that phrase in verse 8, the first thing that jumped out to my mind were the words of Jesus. Did that jump into your mind? You know what the great commandment is? We see the great commandment in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see a, a kind of a small picture of it in, in John where Jesus said the great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, what? As yourself. To love God and to love people. So Romans 13 here really builds upon and is founded upon the teaching of, of Jesus uh, there in, in the Gospels. But Jesus himself took that from the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus, I think I have it up here, Leviticus 19, 18. Way back in Leviticus. I know it's many of your favorite books, book of the Bible. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so when these Pharisees and these different people came and tried to ask Jesus these questions, which commandment's the greatest? Jesus said, here's the greatest. Love God and love others. That's the greatest. Luke 10, 27 uh, quotes it there. John 13, 35, Jesus says it a little differently. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So how were his disciples supposed to love others? Just the way Christ loved them. How should we be loving others? Just the way Christ loved us. Why is it important? By this, all people will know you are my disciples you have love for one another. I'll give you another verse that's not on the screen, but Galatians 5 says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The call for a Christian to be a person who loves others is a clear, direct 
command and call, right? So who are we to love? Now, verse 8 says one another. So the question is, who is our neighbor, right? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is our neighbor? Does that mean I only must love, love the people that live next to me, <laughs> right? Sometimes you don't like the people that live next to you. Yeah, y'all have experiences. But who is our neighbor, biblically speaking? And so you look into this, and the scripture that jumped into my mind was the Good Samaritan. Y'all know the story, don't you? A man falls in a, I'm just a very simple paraphrase, right? A man falls in a ditch. Uh, the priest walks by and ignores him. The Levite walks by and ignores him. And then the Samaritan comes by and helps him. And goes over and beyond to be a good uh, help. And, and Jesus said to the, the man as he told the story, Jesus said, who is a neighbor? Who is a good neighbor? And I, I take that to mean any person we meet from day to day technically is our neighbor. Like the lady at the, at the pilot this week who would not give me four quarters for a dollar. Though she had just given the man before me change, I heard it jingling in his hand. She would not give me four quarters for a dollar. And I stood there very frustrated. And I was like, this is not going to, I'm, I'm going to say something mean, but I'm, I can't do this, you know. Over four quarters. I was desperate. She's my neighbor. And I need to treat her with respect. That person at the drive-thru that's very incompetent, that some of y'all will deal with maybe today if you drive through, that's your neighbor. Do your best to treat them with respect and love. It's easy for us to say, and for me, right? It's easy for me to say, love people, but when she won't give you four quarters for your dollar, <laughs> it's hard to do. When that drive through person messes up your order or tells you to pull ahead and wait ten minutes, that's hard to do, isn't it? It's easy for me to say, we need to love people. God calls us to love our neighbors, to love all the people around us. I mean, let's face it. We struggle sometimes loving the people we live with. And so it's even harder, of course, to love those people outside our, our family. But we would do well to consider that every person we run into deserves our respect. And as a Christian, we should in some way display that Christian love toward them. I mean, remember, chapter, remember two weeks ago in chapter 12? And we know this. Jesus calls us to love and pray for not only those that we love, but also our enemies, right? That's back in chapter 12. And so that's just another point, another reference to the fact that, that we need to love all people. I know it's not easy, but we, just because it's not easy doesn't mean we should not do it, right? We should still do it. The difficulty... The difficulty of a command in the Bible does not neglect our, should not neglect our diligence to do it, right? If that's hard, well, so what? God still said do it, right? Nobody, listen, if we're going to make a difference in the world, like Jesus said, if, if you're going to know you're my people, they'll, they'll know by your love. Um, I want you to think about this. If you are a mean person out in public, is anyone going to want to know about your God? Does anyone care? If you're always negative and everything you say is negative about people, and if you're that way, you might not even realize it, but you need a good friend that will tell you, hey, you're being kind of negative. If you're always negative, do you think people want to hear about your God? If you spend all your time talking down to people at your job, do you think they want to hear about your God? If you treat your spouse like garbage, 
You think people want to hear about your God? Like, I don't want to hear about your faith if you can't love the, the spouse God gave you. Just being honest, right? But if we are people of love, loving our neighbors in the best we can, then that will be a picture of Christ in the church. A picture of what God's called us to do. Well, let's look at verse 8 as we continue here. The second part of it says, uh, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And he talks here about fulfilling the law. And, and again, we go back to the great commandment when they, they come to Jesus and say, Hey, what's the greatest commandment, right? Try, really trying to trip Jesus up or see what he'll say. And, and you know, they're thinking, I think, about the Ten Commandments and many of the Old Testament commandments. And Jesus says, this is the great commandment, love God, love others. And all the others, he said, hangs on this. When Jesus said that, when Jesus said this fulfills the, the law, he doesn't mean the other commandments are negated. He doesn't mean the other commandments are to be cast away. What he means is that love, loving others is a guiding principle in this Christian journey. How many of you have ever worked a job where you went to your job, you got paid, but you had to really work hard? Like you sweated, you had to move around. Like maybe we growing up, y'all haul some hay. I remember hauling, doing some hay growing up. Um, I remember working in a, a furniture factory one time, helping to unload trailers. That was work. You ever worked a job like that before? Some of y'all are like, nah, I've just been in the office the whole time. It's been amazing. You go to a job like that. I think about my wife as a teacher, right? She goes to work every day, and she teaches kids, and she makes money, but she also tracks her steps on her phone, and she takes thousands of steps a day, I guess, or whatever. You ever worked a job like that where you didn't think about it, but really, you're actually getting a little workout at your job? That wasn't what you were trying to do. You didn't go to the job just to get a workout or, you know, to lose weight or whatever, but all of a sudden, you're doing this job, and you're sweating, and, and that's happening. Look, when we, that's an awful whistle, when we love other people, we will automatically be applying or doing God's other commands. Does that make sense? It's going to be hard for you to be breaking some of the Ten Commandments if you're loving people. Look at verse 9. Look at, he, he gives us some, some examples here. He lists, what, four of the commandments in verse 9. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. Let's just stop there. I mean, if you're loving people, you're probably not killing them, <laughs> right? If you love loving people correctly, you're probably not committing adultery. If you're loving people correctly, you're probably not taking their property and stealing. If you're loving people correctly, you're not bearing false witness or coveting. And then he says there in the middle of that verse, any other commandment. So he, he just lists a few that have to do with our relationships with people. And if we're loving others, there won't be time or energy to be spent on sinning against others. Because we're doing what he's called us to do. We can't get around the call of Christ for us to love other people. We just can't get around it. You can't say, I'm an unloving Christian. That's an oxymoron, right? You can't, you can't say that. There's just no way around it. Look at verse 10. Love does no ill or no wrong to his neighbor. You know, some of us, some are good at doing positive things acts of love for your neighbor like my neighbor last year about this time bought me a huge sack 
what was that stuff? Jambalaya. And this, this guy, that's from New Orleans. And it was amazing. And I felt so loved. And I'm hoping they're watching this this morning. They'll send some more this year. But, uh, but we do things like that for people, right? I hope, I hope, you know, whether it's cooking a meal or just encouraging someone or helping someone. I know some of you have probably cut someone's yard for them or, or just helped someone in a tough time. That's good. But what does this verse say? Love worketh no ill or does, this, does no wrong toward his neighbor. You see, there's, there's like this positive example of loving others by our acts. And this is like the negative example. This is refusing to do harm to them, to do wrong to them. And again, you probably had neighbors or the lady that wouldn't give me my quarters who I wanted to do wrong toward. But we must contain ourselves, right, and instead not do wrong. In other words, we need to forgive people who have offended us. We need to not gossip about that person who lives next door who has issues or anybody in the family. There's this positive and this negative example. So I'll, I'll wrap that point up here, but let me ask you this. As a church, and just answer in your heart, don't answer out loud. As a church, how do you think we're doing in loving people? Because you'd always know, because there are people in our church who do things that we never hear about for others. But a better question is this, how are you doing? If you had to grade yourself like a teacher, A, B, C, D, F, how would you grade yourself when you say, how am I doing being a Christian who loves my neighbor, who loves others? And if your answer is anything less than an A, today you should be thinking, Lord, help me love people more. And if your answer is, I'm an A, then, Lord, thank you and help me to keep loving people even more. Number two, our second point, he says here to love others. And then he says here, I'm going to just say it this way, we need to live in the present. Live in the present. Verse 11, and that's knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He kind of moves here in the end of verse thir- chapter 13, talking about this call to action, a call to wake up, a call to, to love and to serve God and to live for God in the present in light of the future. If you read the Bible, there's a common theme, especially in the New Testament, of Christ returning. Did you know that the disciples thought Jesus would come back in their lifetime? I believe they thought that. Do y'all believe that? Like, they thought he was going to come back then. That's been over 2,000 years ago. And since then, every group of Bible-believing Christians has preached and held forth the truth that Jesus could come back. And he has not come back yet. I believe he is coming back. I would not dare say when. It seems like it could be soon, but it could be 1,000 years from now. I I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know, right? But why did God make it where from the disciples to us today and all in between, why did God make it where there's always this anticipation he might come back, he might come back? Think about that. Why did God do that? I think y'all know the answer. Many of you do. It's kind of like when you're at work and you're kind of slacking off your job and all of a sudden the boss comes walking by and you start getting serious about your work again. Or maybe some of you have been the boss. 
And you know when you walk by, people start getting curious about their work. It's this idea that knowing Jesus could come back, we should be busy doing his work. We would not want to be, as, as someone said, be caught wasting our time if he were to come back today. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was reading some articles the other day about some cults. Cults are so fascinating to me because I can't believe people fall for it, which they never know, I guess, until after they're already in it. But, and there are a lot of cults, you know this, have like these end times things. This one I read about, they were this neighborhood like in the Midwest, and they, there was a cult of, it had to be 100 people, and they all got together in this building because this was the day that God was coming back to take them to heaven. And the preacher had already taught them, told them, the, the priest or whatever he was, he told them about it. They were all excited. They came together. They would sing some songs. They'd have some, like, testimony time. And they stood, stood there for hours. I think it was, like, from, like, 6 at night to after midnight. Finally, when Christ didn't return, what do you think happened? The pastor got up. The pastor said, you know what? Y'all are sinners. And he'll come tomorrow night. Let's go home and get our hearts right. They go home and get their hearts right. They come back the next night. Guess what happened? Nothing. The same stuff. A couple weeks later, a few of the people were like, I think we're in a cult. And people began to leave this cult after that. I read another cult story about a man who was one of these UFO cults. This is a true story. Aliens are going to come and get us and take us to heaven. And people believed it. And they all met together, waiting for the aliens. Did the aliens show up? No, it wasn't the movie Independence Day. Aliens didn't show up at that point. And they just wasted their time. And eventually, like, wait, I think we're in a cult. And, and over and over again, many of these cult leaders have this end times craziness. And part of that, I think, is to manipulate people, obviously. But biblical evidence that we believe as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, is that he will one day come back. It's not, that's not a crazy thing to say. But the crazy thing to do is try to guess the day, right? What's the Bible say? No one knows the day nor the hour. You can't guess that. If anyone stands up and tells you Jesus is going to come back on March 27th, 2025, you know, that's, you should not listen to that person. That's ridiculous. But God has set it up in a way that we would, look at the verse again, knowing the time, it's high time to wake up out of our stoop, our sleep. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed because Christ is nearer to returning or we're nearer to going to be with him. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. There's a contrast here of day and night. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in, and he lists here some different sins to be cast off, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. These here are, you know, things related to drunkenness and sexual immorality, jealousy, quarreling, and things of that nature. He says these are works of darkness that we must cast off and put out of our lives. In verse 14, he says this, cast off these things, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. When you get up every day, you dress, usually, I hope you do, accordingly to where you're going, right? Some of you have different clothes you wear to work all week than you wear to church. You know, you have your church clothes. Um, you dress appropriately. Some of you get up every morning, don't you, or the night before you check the weather. What's the weather going to be tomorrow? I'll know what to wear. You dress appropriately. As a Christian, 
our appropriate spiritual wear, clothing, is, as it says here, Christ. Which, which is to say, the, the attitudes of Christ, the actions of Christ, the, the, a, a walk that is reminiscent of the walk Jesus did when he lived on this earth. That's putting on Christ. Look at this quote from Spurgeon. I love how he puts it. I can't put it any better. He says, the rags of sin must come off if we are to put on the robe of Christ. There must be a taking away, watch this, of the love of sin. There must be a renouncing of the practices and habits of sin, or else a man cannot be a Christian. It will be an idle attempt to try and wear religion as a sort of celestial overall over the top of old sin. Look, I want you to look again at verse 12. When he says, cast off the work of works of darkness. See that phrase? Cast off the works of darkness. Now look at verse 14 again. And make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision to satisfy the flesh. I don't know if this will help anybody, but I thought about this as I read these verses. Have y'all ever dealt with someone who's dealing with an addiction? Maybe you've been that person. I don't know, but people are interesting like that. I've, I've dealt with, I've helped or talked to a few people dealing with things like this. Now, there's times we all need help for, for things in our lives, so I'm not judging these people. But someone will come and say, "I really need help with this addiction. I really want to quit this thing I'm doing." And you'll say to them something like this, how serious are you about, your, about quitting? Like, I'm serious. I really want to quit this. And let's, so let's just make an example. Let's say this person is um, an alcoholic, just for example. And so I might say to that person, I'll tell you what, give me your credit card. What are you talking about? I'm going to take away your ability to go and buy that stuff that's hurting you. Of course, they'd be like, that's crazy. How about this? Give me your car keys. Stop driving for a while. Have an accountability partner, someone who's going to know where you are every second of every day. Things like that, and that can, apply, that can apply, by the way, to other addictions. Someone has a problem with stuff on their phone, right, or on the Internet. How about you put a filter on those things? Or how about you get off those things? What we do, though, and what many people do, is we make extra provisions for the flesh instead of making no provisions for the flesh. And do I believe taking away these things will change our hearts? No. But I believe making these provisions or no provisions for the flesh can kind of free up our hearts that God might do a work in there. Let me illustrate it like this. When y'all, if you're my age or older, when you were young and you went on vacations or trips, even in just the town, what did you do when you sat in the back seat of the car? Listen to music? Stare out the window? Read a book, maybe? What do kids do now when they're riding in the back seat of a car? They're watching the DVD player. Our DVD player's out, and so I like to pull up beside the other minivans so we can watch while parents. But, true story, but 
Sometimes my kids don't know how to ride in a car without unless they have their device. You know, sometimes I'm going to say, just stop. Why don't you look out the window for a minute? And my point is this. When we unplug from all those things, we get, I just think we give our mind time to just rest. And maybe even to pray or to think about things that really matter in life. And so that's the illustration I'm making here or the point I'm trying to make is that when we kind of remove things from our lives that are temptations to our sin, then we're, not, we're, doing this, we're applying verse 14. We're not making these provisions for the flesh. We're trying to help our own spiritual walk by avoiding, as we saw a few weeks ago, our, the temptations to evil, any temptations to evil. Look, our faith, if you don't know Christ, you're only going to know him through repentance and faith. We know that, and trusting him. But once you trust him, your faith is continually being worked out, right? And worked on and lived out. And one way it improves is by casting off darkness, casting off sin, and putting on Christ. We, listen to this, we are to embrace Christ in such a way that his character is seen in all that we say and do. Why don't you look at that phrase again? We are to, that sentence again, we are to embrace Christ, put on Christ in such a way that his character is seen in all that we say and do. We don't have a, I guess you could wear a t-shirt, but we don't have clothes that say I'm a Christian, unless you have a Christian t-shirt. But that's not the point anyway. The point is, of our faith, the point is that our lives are the t-shirt. That if we have put on Christ and we've embraced Christ and truly loved him and desire to serve him, then people will see in our words and actions Christ. If people never see Christ in you, that's because he's not in you. Likely. Is Christ in you? This is living in the present. This is obedience to God. And we need, as the emphasis of these last few verses is, we need to wake up again, spiritually wake up to the fact that our days are numbered. We don't know how many days we have, and Christ has us here for a purpose. And that purpose is to love others and to obey Him. I'll move to my conclusion. I challenge us all, church, don't be the person who, who seeks their fulfillment on lifeless religious activity. Don't be like Sam, the first person I mentioned. At the same time, don't be like Steve, who I mentioned, who, who based his fulfillment on religious enthusiasm. The question we all need to ask ourselves as we close today is, do I love people, and am I living in obedience to God's word? And if you can say this morning, I, I'm doing my best by God's help to love people and, and obey God's word, then you should be very thankful. But if you think this morning, I'm just not doing so well in those areas, I hope you would take this time of prayer in just a moment and just pray about it. Asking God to guide you, to help you. We've said it over and over again, loving people is not easy. Obeying his word is not always easy, but it's still right. And we need to ask him to help us live right.
loving others and living for him is not popular either. Should we do it just because it's unpopular? Mm-hmm. No, we do it because it's right. If you're a Christian, you are called to these things. We need to wake up spiritually and serve God. Let's pray together.